Winter was the season of greatest trial. The cabins, crowded to suffocation, were made the scenes of savage mirth and feasting. The Hurons were inveterate gamblers. Sometimes village would challenge village, and as the game progressed, night would be made hideous with the beating of drums and the hilarious shouts of the spectators. Feasts were frequent, since any occasion afforded an excuse for one, and all feasts were accompanied by gluttony and uproar. The dream feast was a maniacal performance. It was agreed upon in a solemn council of the chiefs and was made the occasion of great license. The guests would rush about the village feigning madness, scattering firebrands, shouting, leaping, smiting with impunity any they encountered. Any one would seek some object which he pretended to have learned about in a dream. Only when this object was found would calmness follow. If it was not found, there would be deepest despair. Feasts, too, were prescribed by the medicine men as cures for sickness. The healthy, not the sick, would take the medicine, and would take it till they were gorged. To leave a scrap of food on their platters might mean the death of a patient. Only one of the social customs of the Hurons had any real religious significance. Every ten or twelve years, the great feast of the dead took place. It was the custom of the Hurons either to place the dead in the earth, covering them with rude huts, or, more commonly, on elevated platforms. The bodies rested till the allotted time for final interment came around. Then, at some central point, an immense pit would be dug as a common grave. In 1636, a feast of the dead was held at Osasani. To this place, from the various villages of the Bear Clan, Indians came trooping, wailing mournful funeral songs as they bore the recently dead on litters, or the carefully prepared bones of their departed relatives in parcels slung over their shoulders. All converged on the village of Osasani, where a pit ten feet deep by thirty feet wide had been dug. There, on scaffolds about the pit, they placed the bodies and bones. Carefully wrapped in furs and covered with bark. The assembled mourners then gave themselves up to feasting and games, as a prelude to the final act of this drama of death. They lined the pit with costly furs, and in the centre placed kettles, household goods, and weapons for the chase, all these, like the bodies and bones, supposed to be indwelt by spirits. They laid the dead bodies in rows on the floor of the pit, and threw the bundles of bones. To Indians stationed within, who arranged the remains in their proper places. The Jesuits were witness of this weird ceremony. They saw the naked Indians going about their task in the pit, in the glare of torches, like veritable imps of hell. It was a discouraging scene, but a greater trial than the feast of the dead was in store for them. By a pestilence, a severe form of dysentery. Ihonatiria was almost denuded of its population. In consequence, the priests, who had now been reinforced by the arrival of Fathers Francois Le Mercier, Pierre Pillart, Pierre Chastelain, Isaac Jacques, and Charles Garnier, had to seek a more populous centre as headquarters for their mission in Huronia. The chiefs of Onrio invited the Jesuits to their village, but Brebeuf's demands were heavy. They should believe in God, keep his commandments, abjure their faith in dreams, take one wife and be true to her, 
renounce their assemblies of debauchery, eat no human flesh, never give feasts to demons, and make a vow that if God would deliver them from the pest they would build a chapel to offer him thanksgiving and praise. They were ready to make the vow regarding the chapel, but the other conditions were too severe. The pest was preferable. And so the Jesuits turned to Ossossany, where the people agreed to accept these conditions. Formerly, Ossossany had been situated on an elevated piece of ground on the shore of Nottawasaga Bay, but the village had been moved inland, and, under the direction of the French, a rectangular wall of posts ten or twelve feet high had been built around it. At opposite angles of the wall, two towers guarded the sides. A platform extended around the entire wall, from which the defenders could hurl stones on the heads of an attacking party, or could pour water to extinguish the blaze if an enemy succeeded in setting fire to the palisades. Here the Jesuits were to live for two years. Outside the walls of the town, a commodious cabin seventy feet long was built for them, and on June 5th, 1637, in part of the cabin consecrated as a chapel, Father Piart celebrated Mass. The residence was named La Conception de Notre-Dame. For a wilderness church it was a marvel. At the entrance were green boughs adorned with tinsel. Pictures hung on the walls, crucifixes, vessels, and ornaments of shining metal ornamented the chapel. From far and near Indians flocked to see this wondrous edifice. Best of all, a leading chief offered himself for baptism. The future looked promising. The Indians showed the fathers much affection, and a rich harvest of souls seemed about to be garnered. But all this was to be changed. A hunchbacked, ogre-like medicine man, who claimed to be of miraculous birth, came to Assassini. The pest was still raging, and he laid the blame for it at the door of the missionaries. According to him, their prayers and litanies were charms and incantations. Their pictures were evil okies. It was, he declared, by the influence of these and other agencies, that they had spread the pestilence among the Hurons. Some of the older and more influential Hurons joined with the sorcerer in his denunciation of the priests, and soon the inhabitants of the whole village turned against them. Squaws shut the doors of the cabins at their approach. Young braves threatened them with death. Children followed about them, hooting and pelting them with sticks and stones. At last the priests were summoned to a public council, and openly accused of being the cause of the misfortunes that had recently visited the Huron people. Brebeuf replied to the accusations with unflinching courage, denying the charges, and showing their absurdity. He then boldly addressed his audience on the truths of Christianity, held before them the awful future that awaited those who refused to obey the words of Christ, and declared that the pest was a punishment for their evil lives. The council was deeply impressed by his courage and evident sincerity, and for the time being the lives of the missionaries were in no danger. But they knew that any moment the blow might fall, and none ever went abroad without the feeling that a tomahawk might descend on his unguarded head. On October 28, 1637, Brebeuf prepared, as he thought, a farewell letter to his friends at Quebec. He and the four other missionaries at Ossossany signed it and sent it to the superior general, Lejeune. 
It opens with the words, quote, We are perhaps on the point of shedding our blood and sacrificing our lives in the service of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Unquote. There is no note of fear in this letter. If, it runs, quote, You should hear that God has crowned our labors, or rather our desires, with martyrdom. Return thanks to Him, for it is for Him we wish to live and die. Unquote. Such was the spirit of these bearers of the cross. Their humility, courage, and disinterestedness kept them, for the present, from the crown of martyrdom. But the hunched-back sorcerer continued his agitation, and the storm once more broke over their heads. To show the Indians that he knew their hearts, and that he could meet death with the stoical courage of one of their own chiefs, Brebeuf summoned them to a festin de Dieu, farewell feast, and while his guests, in ominous silence, ate the portions set before them, he addressed them in burning words. He was about to die, but before he departed this life, he would warn them of the life to come. Their resistance to Christ's message, their abuse and persecution of Christ's messengers, would have to be atoned for in eternity. His actions and words took effect. Though the sorcerers still schemed, the Jesuits went about their labors unscathed, preaching to the unregenerate, visiting and caring for the sick, and baptizing the dying. For a year after the establishing of the mission of La Conception at Ossossany, three fathers, Pierre Chastelaine, Pierre Pijar, and Isaac Jacques, ministered to the remnant of the Hurons at Ihonateria. But the pest was still raging, and by the spring of 1638, Ihonateria was little more than a village of empty wigwams. It was useless to remain longer at this spot and the missionaries looked about for another field for their energies. The town of Tianiostie, the largest town in the clan of the Cord, about fifteen miles north of the present town of Barrie, seemed suitable for a central mission. Brebeuf visited the place, talked with the inhabitants, met the council of the nation, and won its consent to establish a residence. In June, the mission of St. Joseph was moved to Tianiostie. Before the end of the summer, Jerome Lalamont, who for the next eight years was to be the superior of the Huron mission, Simon Lamoine, and François Duperon arrived in Huronia. There is now a new distribution of the mission forces, five priests under Lalamont's immediate leadership taking up their abode at Assassini, while three in charge of Brebeuf, settled at Tianiostie. So far, Brebeuf had been the recognized leader in Huronia. He had been nobly supported by his brother priests and his hired men. The residences at both Ihonateria and Ossossani had been kept well supplied with food, even better than many of the Indian households. Game was scarce in Huronia, but the fathers had among their engages an expert hunter. François Petit Pré, ever roaming the forests and the shores in search of game to give variety to their table. Robert Lecoq, a devoted engage, later a don, footnote, an unpaid voluntary assistant whose only remuneration was food and clothing, care during illness and support in old age, End footnote, was their only negotiator or businessman. 
It was Lecoq who made the yearly trips to Quebec for supplies, and who with infinite labor brought many heavy burdens over the difficult trails. Brebeuf had proved himself essentially an enthusiast for souls, a mystic, a spirit craving the crown of martyrdom, yet withal a man of great tact, and a powerful exemplar to his fellow priests. Lalemant, while lacking Brebeuf's dominating enthusiasm, was a more practical man, with great organizing ability. After viewing the wide and dangerous field to be administered, the new superior decided to concentrate the separate missions into one stronghold of the faith. The site he chose was remote from any of the centers of Indian population. It was on the eastern bank of the River Wye, between Mud Lake and Mekatesh Bay. Here the missionaries built a strong rectangular fort with walls of stone, surmounted by palisades, and with bastions at each corner. The interior buildings, a chapel, a hospital, and dwellings for the missionaries and their engages, although of wood, were supported on foundations of stone and cement. The new mission house they named St. Marie, and from this central station the missionaries went forth in pairs to the furthest parts of Huronia and beyond. The missions to the Patoons and the Neutrals, however, ended in failure. The Patoons hailed Garnier and Jacques as the famine and the pest, and the priests barely escaped with their lives. In the following year, 1640, when Brebeuf and Chaumonot went among the Neutrals, they found Huron emissaries there, inciting the Neutrals to kill the priests. These Hurons, while themselves fearing to murder the powerful Okies of the French, as they regarded the black robes, desired that the Neutrals should put them to death. But no such tragedy found place as yet. After visiting nineteen towns, meeting everywhere maledictions and threats, Brebeuf and Chaumonot returned to St. Marie. The good work went on, notwithstanding trials and reverses. The story of the cross was being carried even to the Algonquins and Nipissings of the Upper Ottawa and Georgian Bay. At St. Marie, neophytes gathered in numbers, and here there were no medicine men, satellites of Satan, to seduce them from their vows. But just at the time when the harvest seemed richest in promise, a cloud appeared on the horizon, a forerunner of darker clouds, heavy with calamity. And of the storm which was to bring destruction to the Huron people. Meanwhile, how fared the mission at Quebec? Champlain had died on Christmas Day, 1635, and the Jesuits had lost a staunch friend and never failing protector. His successor, however, was Charles Halt de Montenay, a knight of Malta, a man of devout character, thoroughly in sympathy with the missions. Under Montagny's rule, New France became as austere as Puritan New England. The relations of the Jesuits, sent yearly to France and published and widely read, had roused intense enthusiasm among wealthy and pious men and women. Thus, Noel Brulart, Chevalier de Sillieri, was moved to take an interest in the Canadian mission and to endow a home for Christian Indians. Le Jeune, Chose a site on the bank of the St. Lawrence, four miles above Quebec, and in 1637 the Sillery establishment was erected there, 
consisting of a chapel, a mission-house, and an infirmary, all within strong palisades. About the same time, two wealthy enthusiasts, the Duchess de Quillon, a niece of Cardinal Richelieu, and Madame de la Peltrie, were likewise inspired by the relations to undertake charitable work in New France. These ladies founded, respectively, the Hotel Gia of Quebec and the Ursuline Convent. In 1639, Madame de la Peltrie, who had given herself as well as her purse to the work, arrived in Quebec, accompanied by Mother Marie de Incarnation and two other Ursulines and three Augustinian nuns. The Ursulines at once began their labors as teachers with six Indian pupils. But a plague of smallpox was raging in the colony, and for the first year or two after their arrival, these heroic women had to aid the sisters of the Hotel Dieu in fighting the pest. The Jesuits themselves were busy with the education of the Indians, and had already established a college and seminary for the instruction of young converts. The colony, however, was not growing. The hundred associates had not carried out the terms of their charter. There were less than four hundred settlers in the whole of New France, and only some three hundred soldiers to guard the settlements from attack. Canada, as yet, was little more than a mission, and such it was to remain for another twenty and more years. End of chapter 5